0: It is good to be with you this morning, and I would ask if you would turn in your Bibles to the book of Ephesians chapter 5, Ephesians chapter 5. We are uh, continuing in a series that I began in December where we introduced the subject of the gathering, looking at the promise of the gathering that Jesus gave in Matthew's gospel where he said, I will build my church, or I will build my congregation, I will build my assembly, my gathering. And we looked at that promise, and we looked at that promise in light of the current state of affairs in many of our gatherings, where we have been confronted with uh, turmoil and and perhaps even discouragement because of situations both internal and external to us. Uh, Looking at the impact, for example, of COVID on the the church, looking at uh, the shifting tides of our society and the cultural uh, milieu we find ourselves in, where as Christians we've moved into a very uh, difficult time where standing up for things that the Bible teaches bring with it a great deal of scorn or ostracism. And so looking at the idea that Jesus is the one who's responsible for the church, that Jesus said, I will build my church that I will build my congregation, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. That in that promise, there is hope. And the promise of that hope is the promise of his presence, because where he said, where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst of them." And that was sort of the, the beginning of this study, to kind of set the stage for it. And so beginning today and going through the rest of the, our time together over the next three weeks, we'll be looking at more of this aspect of what the gathering is what God's plan is for his people, and to hope to have a, a revision or a revival of vision, if you will, of what God would do through us as his people and what we are, what we mean to him, and what he wants to do in us and through us. And we will continue the series when I return in June. It's actually a seven part series. And so we start it in December. We're going to look at four sessions uh together here uh in in this time frame and then when i return in june for two sundays we will conclude the series then so that is the plan lord willing and the will of the lord and as we know anything could happen at any time but that is the intent so we're looking at ephesians chapter five and we're going to pick up uh the verse in verse 22 ephesians 5 verse 22 wives be subject to your own husbands as to the lord For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also wives ought to be subject to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. So husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church, because we are members of his body. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is great, but I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for your great love to us. We thank you, Father, that we can approach you in the name of your Son, our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, that we have you as our Heavenly Father and that we can call on you, knowing that the, the path is open, the way has been made for us to have access to you by the work of your Son. We thank you, Father, for your Holy Spirit who indwells your people, who is been has been sent to be a comforter, to be the advocate, to come alongside and help and strengthen us. And so, Father, we would pray for him to have the freedom to work in our lives and in our minds this morning that we might be open and ready to receive what you have for us that you would encourage our hearts and instruct us in the way we should go father we recognize that we live in in very difficult times we live in very uh challenging times globally locally nationally and so father we pray that your spirit might encourage us to fix our eyes on jesus the author and finisher of our faith, and that we would, like him, uh, keep our eyes on the goal. And we pray this, Lord, for your glory, that we might honor and glorify you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. In preparing for this message, I did something very sentimental. I pulled up my daughter's wedding video on Facebook, and I wanted to see just this short video that uh, she had. And I was even tempted to show it to you guys, but I thought I better not subject you guys to that, you know, in terms of that. But it was, it was a very interesting, uh, it was very, really well done. And what struck me was, is that at one point everybody was crying. I was crying. My wife was crying. My daughter was crying. The groom was crying the groom's father was crying. Everybody's crying, and, except for my son. Now, my son is very stoic. He is a very controlled. He would, we would be sitting around as we were growing up in our living room, and we would be watching a movie, and it would be a sort of a sentimental movie, and we're all crying except him, and he'd blurt out, Why are you crying? Why is everyone in my family crying? But on that day, it was very good that that he was in control because I was walking my daughter down the aisle, and I was also going to be performing the ceremony. And so as I'm walking down the aisle, and he is standing where the, you know, the officiant is standing, and as we walk up, he's looking at his mother, he's looking at me, he's looking at Rachel, and he just goes like this. And it was just exactly what we all needed because we all started chuckling. He's got a big smile, totally tearless, not a tear in his eye. Just get it together, folks. Okay. And then he asked who gives this woman to be married to this man. And then he moved over to join the groomsmen. And I took the place as, as the officiant. And, of course, there are customs all around the world that, are associated with wedding ceremonies and different cultures have different traditions and different societies have different ways of uh, making official a relationship between a man and a woman as husband and wife. Uh, the Jewish culture has a different tradition. Uh, there are cultures in Africa and Asia have very different traditions. But what has been historically significant is that every society celebrates this event. Every society looks at this event as something very significant. Every society marks this event in a way that a man and a woman now come together in a way that they weren't together before this event. And as a result of this event, something new and something different has emerged, And what's striking to me and what's interesting in terms of the text we just read is that God's intention in the first marriage, in the first wedding, as it were, where he himself was the officiant at that union, was that that union between Adam and Eve, that marriage between that man and woman and every subsequent marriage since then has as part of its purpose, a portrayal of Christ's relationship with the church. And of course, as we know, when sin entered into the world and death by sin, and so death is passed upon all men, for all have sinned. We also understand that with that death and within that corruption, within that marring of the image of God, marriage itself has also suffered the consequences of sin. That right from the very beginning, God said the relationship between a man and a woman was going to now be fraught with tension and stress because of the sin that had entered into the world. That, that that the natural bent that human beings now have, which is away from God and disobedient to God, that that was going to impact their relationship, not just with God, but with each other and with their spouses. And so it's not surprising that when Paul would present the church in Ephesus with what has been called the Magna Carta, the constitution of the church in the letter to Ephesians, that at that point in this chapter, he would address reclaiming marriage the way God intended it to be. Not just for our own personal happiness, not just so that as Christians, We would have a better life, that our marriages would be better, that we'd have happier homes and that our children would be raised in more stable environments. All those things are true, but that wasn't his purpose. The purpose of laying out the blueprint for marriage was so that marriage itself would become once again what God intended it to be, one of the portraits of the gathering. One of the portraits that God would use to illustrate his relationship to his people. If we think about what we do as God's people, if we think about the relationship that God has called us into, what we think about church is very vital to how we function. As Proverbs says, as a person thinks, so are they so is he as a person thinks as a man thinks. in other words what we think about things what we imagine what we believe what we think about in terms of what is real that's going to dictate how we function as human beings and that is true in our ideas about the church what we believe in our core about what it means to be part of the church or part of a gathering is going to fundamentally influence our behavior. And of course, as we looked at the last time we were together, we've seen that for a lot of people, what they were looking for in church can now be satisfied through YouTube that what they believed about church was that
1: it was primarily something that they got from it.
0: That it was something that they got out of it. But that the idea that it went beyond a performance, or that it went from beyond an audience, was not part of their thinking about church. And COVID just kind of exposed that. But what we find here is that in the New Testament, the the word church, the word ecclesia, is a word that's loaded with meaning. The idea that it is a gathering, that it is a, a congregation. And that in the New Testament, there are many portraits of the gathering. And we've just looked at two of them. In the New Testament, the church is, Described as the body of Christ. It is described as the bride of Christ. We are described as the temple of God. We are described as the family of God. We are described as the priesthood of God. And every one of these portraits, every one of these word pictures convey meaning to us. And if we were to meditate on those meanings, we would unpackage significance that would instruct us into how we're supposed to function. And what we don't find in the New Testament is is a picture of us that has us as an audience. That portrait does not exist anywhere in the New Testament where we are just an audience. And an audience in coming together for a performance. Yes, there was an audience when Jesus taught, the audience listened, but but they weren't there. Well, sometimes they were there to see a spectacle. But when God called his people out, the purpose wasn't for a spectacle. The purpose was very different. And the portraits in the New Testament convey to us various meanings. For example, when we think of us as the family of God, what does it suggest to us? When Jesus teaches us to pray, he says, When you pray, say, Our Father who is in heaven. The idea that we are brothers and sisters in Christ, mothers and fathers in Christ. When we consider the idea that we're a priesthood and Jesus is the great high priest. He's the great high priest, which means he's like priest over other priests, right? That's the idea of being a high priest, that there are lower priests. So there's a function we have, a purpose we have as priests. And then we, hear, we see here in this passage the idea that we are both the body and the bride of Christ. And it's striking that both images are in the same passage. Like if you were to go to Corinthians, you would find passages that Paul talks about as being the body of Christ and the significance of that and understanding in relationship to our gifting and our interdependence. And then there are other portions where he talks about the bride and presenting us as the bride to him, to Christ. But here in this very passage, we find both of them simultaneously and interchangeably identified. And and it's interesting and and very significant in terms of the, the context of where this is drawn from. Because when we look at this, we see Paul going back to the very beginning. We see Paul going back to the creation with Adam and Eve. And what we find is that implied in this Connection is the cost. When God saw Adam, he said, It's not good for the man to be alone. And he put Adam to sleep.
1: And he took out of Adam a portion of his body. And
0: from that, he made woman. So, in one sense, Eve was like literally. His body. God had fashioned her.
1: Out of him.
0: And what Paul is saying in a similar way. When Christ. Suffered when Christ died. Out
1: of his body. Came his bride. That out from him.
0: Came his bride. Now it's interesting when you consider the contrast between Adam and Christ, because Adam, he takes a nap, wakes up with a wife.
1: But when we consider about
0: Christ, the process he went to before he went to sleep. It says in Genesis that God made a deep sleep fall upon Adam, and then while he was sleeping, the process took place. We understand that death is often referred to in the scriptures as a sleep. But the journey for God to put Jesus to sleep was not pleasant. It was not easy. It was literally excruciating.
1: Out of the cross.
0: And so when we get to this place and we start to consider this imagery of the church as his body and as his bride, we see that there is here this connection that Paul wants us to understand. And it's interesting because when you consider like what Paul is doing here, he's, he's actually like laying out for us as husbands and wives, a model for us, and he's kind of turning it around and saying, look, if you want to know what it means to be a good husband, if you want to know what it means to be a good wife, you need to look at Christ in the church. Because what happens is, is that we as people have become so off base, we become so bent, so distracted, so selfish that we can't actually portray Christ properly in our marriages until we actually understand what Christ has done for his bride.
1: You know, growing up, that was
0: really the thing that terrified me. I can tell you that on my wedding day, when I was married, right, I had like this stunned look on my face. I, I did, you know, Rose would say, are you okay? Yeah, I'm fine. I literally had like this emotional fake smile. It was like, what have I done? Now, you need to understand something. Getting me to the point where I could say I do, for me, was really a challenge because of my family of origin. See, because when I was growing up, my family was so dysfunctional. My, My father and mother were so dysfunctional in their relation with each other that I couldn't really know what a good husband or father was supposed to do. In fact, and I say this with all honesty, that as a young man, when I was entering marriage, my decision to figure out how to be a husband father was to look at what my dad did and then just do the opposite. So when I came to this passage as a young Christian, this passage was like a life-saving passage in terms of marriage because I can look at what Jesus does for me. I can look at what Jesus has done for his church. I can look at what Jesus has done for his people. And that kind of gives me the direction of what it means to be a husband and a father. But here's the amazing thing that when you do that, right, suddenly your marriage, your home, your family becomes a place where people see Jesus. That when you start to look at him and focus on him and think about what he does for you as a person, what he does for his people, what he does for his ecclesia, his gathering, his congregation, when we focus on what he has done for us and we start to do that for one another, suddenly people around us, our children, our spouses, our neighbors, the people we work with, they begin to see Jesus in us.
1: And that's the point.
0: That's the point that Paul is talking about here. And this is the mystery that is great, that when he talks about this idea of leaving his father and mother, be joined to his wife, and then to become one flesh, he says, this mystery is great, but I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. And there is this statement here that he makes. He says, He says here in verse 28 that husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it. And then notice the next phrase, just as Christ does the church. Christ nourishes his people. Christ cherishes his people. And of course, when we think about what it means to nourish, when we think about what it means to nourish the body, it, to nourish in this context means to, to bring to maturity, to feed in such a way as to nurture and bring up. It's, a, it's an image of caring and feeding. And it's the idea that Christ nourishes his people. He also Cherishes his people. The word cherish here is, is to hold close to, to, it it actually has a sense of temperature, like being warmed towards something or someone. And there's a sense of security and safety and closeness that is in this word that's packaged in this word. This idea that Christ nourishes us and this idea that he cherishes us. And we see this in 1 Thessalonians where where Paul models this behavior. He says, but we proved to be gentle among you as a nursing mother tenderly cares for her own children. That's the idea of the cherishing there. Tenderly caring. In Zephaniah, we read these words, the Lord your God is with you, the mighty warrior who saves. He will take great delight in you. In his love, he will no longer rebuke you, but will rejoice over you with singing. In Psalm 149,
1: the Lord takes pleasure in his people.
0: I think one of the things that, that the enemy has used and that it has been very effective in misrepresenting the gospel is the idea that in some way, when God saves us, there is a sense in which he's doing this begrudgingly. And that that he really doesn't like us.
1: That he really doesn't have much
0: in the way of approval for us. But that, you know, our sin is so bad and our sin is so terrible and, 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 but Christ died for our sins. And so we can be forgiven. But the idea that God rejoices over us with singing is not an image that really comes to our minds very often. The idea that, that he takes pleasure in his people. Look, we don't even take pleasure in each other
1: But he takes pleasure in
0: us, and so when we think about this and we think about what this means for us in terms of a portrait that this is his body, this is his bride, you know you know why everybody was crying at my daughter's wedding because we were just all happy. It was an emotional moment this was there was like this. All this emotion pent up in this moment. And when my son-in-law saw my daughter, he just was overwhelmed with emotion at her sight. And when she saw him, she was overwhelmed at seeing him. And there was a sense in which there was a celebration. It was a great
1: celebration. And the reality is, is that
0: That kind of enthusiasm, that kind of joy, that kind of love is what God
1: wants for us and his people. When we look at this,
0: what are the implications for us as a gathering of God's people? Well, when you think about a body and you think about how your body functions we all understand that our body needs its members so let's start with this idea that christ wants to nourish us he wants to nourish his body his body is made up of each one of us how does he do this how does he nourish us Well, we have many members, Paul says, in one body, but all the members don't have the same function. So we being many are one body in Christ and individually members of one another.
1: So let me frame it this way.
0: Your relationship to God matters. Your personal relationship to God matters. If your relationship to God personally suffers... It's not just you who suffers, but the body suffers. If you allow yourself to slide spiritually, if you allow yourself to compromise spiritually, if you allow yourself to drift spiritually, that just doesn't harm you. It harms the body because the body needs you. And so the way that Christ nourishes the body is that he first nourishes me personally. That there is a relationship that I have with God that's unique to me. It's not the same that you have. It's not the same that anyone else has anywhere at any time. I am a unique individual personally. God has invested in me and he wants to have relationship with me. He desires for me to commune with him. He desires for me to know him. The whole purpose of Christ's coming was so that we might know him. And in knowing him, discover all that we have longed for, all that we have desired, all that we have wanted, finding it in him. And so in that relationship I have with him, I am nourished. It blesses me. Now, you might think that that's not that important a thing, but you need to understand that your salvation was for that end. It wasn't just to make you happy and go to heaven. It was so that you might know him. The the Lord Jesus prayed that they might know you, whom to know is life eternal. That in the mind of Christ, eternal life and all the benefits that come with that is synonymous with personal relationship with God the Father. And so he nourishes us individually.
1: So that we might be the vehicles he uses to nourish each other.
0: Because the body is greater than the sum of its parts. The functioning of a local congregation is dependent on the health of each
1: of its members. Growth
0: happens as every member does their part. Paul earlier in Ephesians says that speaking the truth in love, we may grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ from whom the whole body joined and knit together by what every joint supplies according to the effective working by which every member does its part
1: or every part does its share. And when we do that, the body grows.
0: So the imagery here Of This portrait, what this portrait shows us, there are many portraits in the New Testament, but this particular portrait of the body encourages us to recognize the nourishing aspect. In other words, the word nourishing particularly applies to this idea of us being a body that grows, a body that matures, a body that is healthy, a body that is reaching its full potential.
1: And, of course, in in terms of how
0: bodies function, there is interdependence. There is interdependence. We need one another. When we consider the portrait of being a bride, that speaks specifically to the idea of the cherishing. And we are loved.
1: We are the beloved.
0: It's one of the... John uses it. Paul uses it. Peter uses it. They all use this term to describe us. To all who are in Rome, beloved of God. Holy and beloved.
1: And when we think about this and we think about what it means to be beloved... Well, it is a true statement that hurt people hurt people. Right? I mean, that's that's a truism.
0: Hurt people hurt people. We can look at any cycle of abuse. We can look at any situation in domestic violence. And the perpetrators have in their past wounds they themselves have experienced. Hurt people hurt people, but that's true. Should it not also be true that loved people love people? Should it not also be true that those who experience forgiveness forgive? That those who have been cared for care?
1: That those who are beloved Love others. Christ loves the church. Do we?
0: Christ nourishes the gathering. Christ cherishes the assembly. Christ cares for and provides for his congregation. So here is where we need to have our thinking change. We need to be like Christ in our marriages, as the passage suggests. We are to demonstrate in our homes Christ likeness that portrays the relationship that God has with his people to a world that is really looking for something. But it is also the idea that we should be nourishing and cherishing
1: each other. And that's just not possible if the only time we see each other is on a Sunday morning.
0: Could you imagine if the only time I saw a rose was for 90 minutes on a Sunday? You got a lot of catching up to do, Honey.
1: Could you imagine what your children would be like if you only spent one hour a week with them? See, in relationships that matter,
0: we understand that investment is required. And if we don't invest in the relationships, we're not really surprised when the marriages fall apart and children run away and all these other negative consequences that take place. Like it's no surprise, right? Because you neglect, you ignore, you abuse. What do you expect? But when we think about church, so much of what we think about is confined to the hour and a half or two hours that we get together on a Sunday morning. And that's it. And for most of us, we don't have contact meaningfully with any other believers
1: during the week. And what we do
0: reinforces that. And when I say what we do, I talk about what I do, what churches do, right? Like, think about this. And it's kind of a catch-22 because I'm trying to teach something. But in the very teaching of it, I'm reinforcing something that I don't want to reinforce. And what is that? What am I inadvertently teaching you what is the unintended consequence that church is coming to someplace sitting and listening passively for 45 minutes and then getting up and leaving. So I'm reinforcing the very thing I wish I could undo. And that is to consider the fact that we're not supposed to be an audience. That we're not supposed to be sitting passively and just sitting quietly And doing nothing more than just thanking the preacher for the message and walking out the door and then living our lives as we see fit from, you know, Sunday afternoon to next Sunday. And so what we want to understand is that this nourishing and this cherishing, when we think about what it meant, look, the early church, when they got saved, that they were called together as this great gathering in Jerusalem. They didn't want to leave. They, they set up a holy commune. And they were all now, granted, that was a, that was not really the mission. Like they kind of got off mission right from the start. Jesus said go, and they said stay. But the point was they understood on some level that, that we're something different. We're something special. There's a relationship I have with you, a relationship with my brothers and sisters that transcends time and eternity. And as Christians, we need to nourish that. We need to cherish that. And if we reduce church to an hour or two hours on a Sunday or throw in maybe another 45 minutes on Zoom in the middle of the week, we're not living out the image Of Christ as his body and bride. Now what that means for you personally, I don't know. What it means for me is I I want people in my home. I want people over for dinner. I want Bible studies in my house. COVID derailed a lot that we're moving back. I want young adults in my home on Sunday night. I don't care if it's two or 20. I want people in my home on Thursday night for Bible study. I want people to text me with their prayer requests. Yes, I'm a curmudgeon. And believe me, I would be a hermit if it wasn't for my wife. I'm not joking. Give me a few good books and lock me in a cell. I'm
1: good to go. The reality
0: is, is that I've had to grow to actually like tolerate people. Some of you are much more gregarious and much more friendly than I am. But I understand that for me, I have to be like accessible on some level. Whether it means going to someone's home or having them come to mine, the fact remains that we nourish each other and cherish each other when we have contact with each other. This is where COVID is such an interesting historical event because it made us afraid of one another.
1: And I understand there were legitimate reasons to be afraid, but the fact is, is that we have to get beyond that. We need to encourage, nourish, and cherish
0: each other because christ nourishes and cherishes us let us pray our god and our father we thank you for this time to be together we would pray lord that you would take your word to encourage our hearts to motivate us to to see how we are nourished and cherished in our relationship with you the lord help us not to be like the dead sea which has all this going in and nothing going out help us father to to be free to unlock the the reservoirs of blessing that we have and to allow you to pour through us what you've poured into us lord we confess that sin makes us selfish and that our natural orientation is to be centered on me myself and I so Lord I pray that you would lift us out of our self-absorption lift us out of our selfishness help us to see and to relish how much you nourish and cherish us so that we might be free to nourish and cherish others And we just ask you, Lord, to do this for your glory, that your kingdom come, that your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We ask this in the name of your Son, our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ.
1: Amen.